worship, but I would like to say when we're singing power in the blood, you have to say it like a southerner. It's par. It's not power. It's par. And if you do that, you will sing it more easily. Second, I want to invite everyone to come back tonight, uh, not only for our service, but right after our service, before our members meeting, for any guests, we'd love to have you here with us as well. We are celebrating what we weren't able to celebrate last year, the fact that we went over 100 members, so we will have some cake and refreshments here after the service this evening. So we'd love for you to be back and just as we give thanks for what God has done in our midst as we've prayed for him to grow and build our church. And then finally, the sermon title in your program is wrong. But that's what you get when you name your sermon two weeks in advance before Dan leaves, only to know that it changes afterwards. So it's remember death today, not what it is in the program. But the text is the same. So we should be fine. Except not that text. Never mind. That text is wrong. So... So that text is not right. Chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'd love for you to take one of those underneath the seat in front of you or near you, home with you, so that you can study God's Word. As we're reading in chapter 7, verses 1 through 22, if you're the type of person who likes to write in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline every time you see wise or wisdom. The preacher writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us this morning. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise, to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. 
Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Let's pray. Father, we do pray and ask for your help on this time as we turn our attention to your word. Regularly, we remind ourselves that it is specifically during these moments that the enemy would seek to snatch the good word that we hear. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to focus our attention right now. Lord, we pray as we give our hearts to trying to understand wisdom, Lord, that you would indeed make us wise, not simply by helping us amass a body of facts, but by learning to walk in the way of Christ. We think of what the apostle says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. To follow Christ is to follow the path of wisdom. So we pray that you would help us now. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. At the beginning of his book, the preacher asks in chapter one, verse three, what does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun before going on a mission throughout the book of Ecclesiastes of trying to find gain and profit and benefit in this life? This is why careful readers of the book of Ecclesiastes have noticed the question of gain and profit and benefit keeps popping up over the course of the whole book. Chapter 2, verse 22. What has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? Chapter 3, verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? Chapter 5, verse 16. What gain is there to him who toils for the wind? But almost immediately after asking the question in chapter 1, the preacher is confronted with the reality that he cannot control his life by gain or profit or benefit, by merely being smart enough or partying hard enough or working long enough or amassing enough. Because as we have seen over the past several chapters in particular, this world is riddled with everything from injustice and death to cruelty and oppression to envy and rivalry to loneliness and isolation to greed and workaholism, and so much more. Immediately, we are now confronted with how are we to respond? Now, at this point, for many people, perhaps for many of us here, we close the book of Ecclesiastes only to never return again because it is simply too honest and for many of us often too depressing. We'd rather not think about hard things. Life has enough hard things without you actually having to think about them. We'd rather think about happy things so we focus on more palatable ideas as we evade what is difficult. But the preacher tells us that that is not wisdom, which is exactly why Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 22, presents us with two options, wisdom or folly, learning to live with life's sadness and sorrows, limitations and boundaries, Instead of ignoring the pain until it all goes away, instead of numbing the pain by drinking or entertaining or indulging or sleeping or working ourselves to death. Until we see this, all of the pithy statements that we read a few moments ago in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 will feel like pearls randomly arranged on a string, individually beautiful in their own right, but completely disconnected from one another rather than a series of proverbs 
purposefully arranged by the preacher to show us an alternate way of living under the sun as we finally come to grips with the reality that controlling every part of our lives is impossible as we remember death. Notice first, live like you are dying. Look again in chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. The preacher tells us what we already know to be true. Our reputation, our character, the things that we are known for are far more valuable than an impressive CV or an extensive resume or lots of professional experience. A good name is better than precious ointment or riches. But notice how the preacher immediately flips everything on its head when he says in verse 1, and the day of death and the day of birth. One of the great privileges of pastoral ministry is not only being with people to comfort them at the end of their life, but to be with people to rejoice with them at the beginning of life. Some of my happiest memories as a pastor, as a father, are in maternity wards, visiting some of you. But even if you have not experienced that for yourselves, all of us are able to imagine the great joy that a baby brings. All of the life and all of the hope and all of the potential that is just stretching before the child. So how can the day of death ever be better than the day of birth? Because as one writer noted, the preacher is saying that the day of death is, better, is a better teacher than the day of your birth. How so? When a new baby is born, parents fall over themselves and can say nothing more intelligent than, she looks like her mom. He's the spitting image of his father. Look, he has his granddad's uh, fingers and toenails and all of these things. No one can say anything intelligent about the child because all they can do is adore the child. But you fast forward 40 or 60 or 80 years to the day of that same baby's death, and then what do we say? How Christ-like was that person? She loved Jesus so much. What an unbelievably self-sacrificing and gentle person. He was incredibly faithful to the local church. Or she was devoted to her work. He really loved playing golf. I've never met anyone who was so passionate about Sudoku puzzles. She was always at the Y. As David Gibson noted, the day of death is better than the day of birth, not because death is better than life. It's not but because a coffin is a better preacher than a cot. When life ends or is about to end, absolutely everything else comes into focus. The things that don't really matter, but which we gave so much time to, now seem empty and pointless. The lives we touched and the generosity we showed and the love we gave or received now mean so much more That's what the preacher is saying. A coffin preaches better sermons than a cot. In Ecclesiastes 7, the preacher is telling us to live like we're dying as we consider what type of life we want to live, what type of person we want to be, what type of legacy we hope to leave as we learn what it means to live the good life in light of the reality of our future death. Think of it like this. When I was younger, and perhaps this was true for so many of you, it was not uncommon for people to say things like, hey, if you were given three months to live or six months to live or a year to live, what would you do differently? To which so many people always respond with things like this. Well, I would read more 
and work less and spend time with the people that I love and go the places that I always wanted to visit and so on. But the preacher, I think, is saying something like this. If you were given three months or six months or a year to live, have lived in such a way that you would be able to continue business as usual because you have learned what really matters in life. A walk with a friend, being present with the people that you love, the local church, fellowship with the living God. Hear the psalmist, Psalm 27, verse four. One thing I have asked of the Lord, one thing. Think of your prayers and all of the things that you've asked for. Psalmist says, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The preacher is calling us to look forward to the day of our death and evaluate what type of person we should be right now in light of it. Verse two, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. The living will lay it to heart, not the dead. Verse four, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The preacher has learned what we learn, that there are really only two types of people at a funeral. The fool who is sitting there thinking, this is all grim, and I'd rather not be at this place anyways, and all I can think about is how quickly I can get outside, and the wise person who is sitting there staring at the casket thinking, my turn's next. And one day it will be me. And when it is my turn, what will my friends say about my life? Will what I have lived for be something that was worth living for to begin with? Friends, as my mentor used to say, everyone is always writing their own obituary. It's one thing for you to think, this is how my story should be recounted. It is quite another thing for the very people that you are closest to to say, this is what characterized that person's life. Which is why the preacher says, it is better to listen to a friend list all of your faults than building a social media following. Look at verse five. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. The people who love you enough to tell you the truth, who will say to you what you do not prefer to hear, do not spurn them. Heed their warnings and listen to their counsel. Because amusing ourselves to death is fun while it lasts, but it only lasts as long, long as the kindling that we use to start the fire, verse six. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. The preacher is not saying Scrunch up your face and be morbid throughout life. On the contrary, the preacher is saying, what characterizes a person of wisdom is depth. They have a depth of soul, a depth of character, and superficiality is the mark of a fool who is living in denial, denial of what is before them, but it is death awareness that marks the wise. Friends, if you live in denial of death, there is no meaning to life except eat and drink, laugh and party, exercise and work, spend and save. Instead of being superficial, the preacher says, be a person of depth. 
Be someone who knows how to weep with those who weep. The vision that the good life that the preacher is calling us to is actually preparing us to die a good death because that helps us see that all of our life, all of your life, every bit of your life, your family, your friends, your career, your health is all on loan from God. So we should enjoy the life that we have instead of pining for the one that we don't. We should receive the gifts that we each are given instead of coveting the ones that have been given to our neighbor. So the question before you is, will you let the reality of your death reshape the way that you are living your life right now? Or are you living like you will never die? And if you're honest, like I was having to be when I was confronted with this text this week, so often I live my life like I'm immortal, even in death. Because all I can think about in death is, what will they say about me when I'm not there? Because the only person I'm thinking about is me. But it's not only our future death that teaches us wisdom. We can learn from death in the ways that it has impacted and affected other people. Because when death comes close to somebody, that person is never the same again. As many of you know, one of the things that I love to do here is give away books. I love giving away books because I've been so greatly helped by books. I give away new books. I give away old books. I give away fiction books. I give away nonfiction books. I love to put them in your hands so that you would be helped and so that you would learn to be blessed by the euphoria of reading. But last year, one of our members gave me a book after I wrote a congregational letter to you, Nicholas Wolterstorff's book, Lament for a Son. And that short, simple, honest book That man wrestles with grief in the wake of his 25-year-old son's death. And by sharing in the depths of his grief, he helps us see not trite phrases, but how to wrestle honestly with the floodgates of pain. He writes, on the way back, I thought about the tears. Our culture says that men must be strong and that the strength of a man in sorrow is to be seen in his tearless face. Tears are for women. Tears are signs of weakness, and women are permitted to be weak. Of course, it's better if they're strong as well. But why celebrate stoic tearlessness? Why insist on never outwarding the inward when the inward is bleeding? Does enduring while crying not require as much strength as never crying? Must we always mask our suffering? May we not sometimes allow people to see and enter in? I mean, may men not do this? And why is it so important to act strong? I've been graced with strength to endure, but I've been assaulted, and in the assault have been wounded, grievously wounded. Am I to pretend otherwise? Wounds are ugly, I know, they repel, but must they always be swathed? I shall look at the world through tears, and perhaps through tears I shall see things that dry-eyed I could not. Death Suffering, pain, is this great leveling experience before God that teaches us teary-eyed what we could not see dry-eyed. But brothers and sisters, the great promise of the gospel is that God does not leave us alone in our suffering. He enters into our suffering. And once again, it's Voltersdorf that helps us when he says, God is not only the God of the sufferers, but the God who himself suffers. The pain and fallenness of humanity 
have entered into his heart through the prism of my tears. I have seen a suffering God and great mystery to redeem our brokenness and lovelessness. The God who suffers with us did not strike some mighty blow of power, but sent his beloved son to suffer like us through his suffering to redeem us from suffering and evil and death. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares our suffering. God does not give us cheap answers in the face of suffering and pain and death. And brothers and sisters, one of the worst things that we can do, one of the greatest disservices that we can do for one another is give cheap answers to pain and sorrow and suffering and death to one another. As if the great gospel blessing is to not feel pain. Instead, in our suffering, the Bible assures us that God is actually drawing near to us, which is why we see Jesus in ancient Palestine promising his disciples this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But what did Jesus mean? And in what sense are those who mourn actually blessed? Once again, I'm going to apologize for one more lengthy quote from Volterstorff. Blessed are those who mourn. What can that mean? One can understand why Jesus hails those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, why he hails the merciful, why he hails the pure in heart, why he hails the peacemakers, why he hails those who endure persecution. These are qualities of character which belong to the life of the kingdom. But why does he hail the mourners of the world? Why cheer tears? It must be that mourning is a quality of character that belongs to the life of his realm. Who then are the mourners? The mourners are those who have caught a glimpse of God's new day, who ache with all of their being for that day's coming, who break into tears when confronted with its absence. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm of peace, there is no one blind, but who ache whenever they see someone unseen. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm, there is no one who goes hungry, but who ache whenever they see someone starving. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm, there is no one falsely accused, but who ache whenever they see someone imprisoned unjustly. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm, there is no one who fails to see God and who ache whenever they see someone unbelieving. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm, there is no one who suffers oppression and who ache whenever they see someone beat down. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm, there is no one without dignity and who ache whenever they see someone treated with indignity. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm of peace, there is neither death nor tears, and who ache whenever they see someone crying tears over death. The mourners are aching visionary, and such people Jesus blesses. Friends, the day is coming when there will be peace, but it is not here yet. And your life is a reminder that it has not yet arrived. So we mourn, and we grieve, and we break, and we shed tears in the face of suffering, and political turmoil, and racial strife, and economic uncertainty, and all of the unique circumstances that every single person in this congregation is experiencing today, but we do so in hope, with good cheer, because we know that what Jesus promises will come true. We, too, will 
be comforted. And for those of you who do not yet fear the comfort of God, I stand here today to tell you that that day is coming. And I know that you long for it to arrive sooner. But the great promise of Scripture is that it will come and you will not be missed. The preacher helps us see that death actually wears a preacher's robe to teach us that life is finite and that we must learn from the sermons that death preaches so that we can learn how to live like we're dying. Wisdom prepares us to die, and wisdom enables you to live. Live like you were dying. Notice second, live wisely while you live like you are dying. Look in verse 11. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. The preacher uses the reality of death and suffering as a catalyst to teach us how to live wisely while we live like we are dying. So in the rest of our text, we see the preacher addressing this smorgasbord of ideas in light of the reality of our impending death. Notice number one, bribes. Look in verse seven. Surely oppression drives the wise man into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. The love of wealth has already been characterized as folly by the preacher. Not wealth itself. It's not wrong to have wealth. It's not wrong to have a lot of wealth, but to love wealth. But the preacher wants us to see that the wise actually join fools when they sell their integrity for money. Whether it's to cover for a sibling or to overlook what you know to be wrong at work so that your boss doesn't find out, so that you can continue to climb the corporate ladder, The preacher says, a bribe corrupts the heart. Brothers and sisters, have you been bought with a price? Have you been silenced with the promise of gain? The preacher says that you're a fool if you think that you can be this type of person and live wisely. Remember death's sermon. No matter how much you gain from it, you will never see a hearse towing a U-Haul. Number two, patience. Look at verse eight. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Even in my short life, one of the things that I've noticed that is common for people, particularly young people, is to begin and not finish. Whether that's home improvement projects or athletics or education or books, or work, or some other promise, because it's hard, and it takes time, and it requires sacrifice, and it means that every time we're doing that, we're not doing something else that we would also like to be doing. But the preacher says, remember death sermon, a good name that is followed through all the days on the last day is better than impatient ease, and let your coming death help you see things through to the end. Friends, anything worthwhile takes time to do and to develop. Anything that is worth anything at all requires sacrifice and patience. Whether that is growing in your skill as a Bible reader or learning how to put sin to death or any other achievement in this life. 
But the preacher says that one of the things that he sees is that people begin and do not finish. And so walk in the way of folly. Third, anger. Look at verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. As you remember death's sermon, you will adopt a long-term view of life, which means that you will recognize that you will continually be confronted with a series of frustrations throughout the rest of your life as you continue on life's journey. So the preacher says, you need to develop the practice of lengthening your fuse so that you do not explode. And one of the ways that you do that is attend a funeral so that you will remind yourself that one day you too will be dead. Is it really worth being the type of person who loses their temper? I wonder not only how your family would say that you react, but how do your friends and your colleagues characterize your life? One of patience or one of anger? One of impatience or one of gentleness? Notice fourth, nostalgia. Look at verse 10. Say not why were the former days better than these, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. As we age, and you can ask anybody in the congregation who has lived any length of time at all, it is not uncommon to hear people in absolutely every generation say something like, when I was a kid, things were different. Things aren't what they used to be. What is the world coming to? When we were younger, we worked hard. But these people now, I'm glad I don't have to raise my kids with all of the problems that you all have to face. The preacher says, maybe the past was better. But that's no use to you because you live in the present. So it doesn't help by you complaining about how wonderful the past was. In fact, the best thing that you can do is learn how to live wisely in the present. And idyllic nostalgia is just a denial of God's sovereign goodness in the present anyways. Friends, do you live life like God is no longer in control? Are you living as if COVID-19 or the election of 2020 or all of the concerns that you're facing in 2021 or your marital problems or the difficulties that you're facing with your kids or the financial stress that you have in your home or the sickness that you're battling in your life? or all of the problems you're facing with your health have caught God off guard and as if somehow he does not know that you alone are suffering. Remember death's sermon. And the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Fifth, providence. Look at verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Now, maybe your life is one that is carefree and has been untouched by so much human suffering, but for many of us, that's not the case. And perhaps, like so many people, you've had so much brokenness and chronic illness and depression and anxiety, and you have faced personal betrayal and broken relationships and false allegations. You have been the recipient of other people's destructive sins, or you have been plagued by your own destructive sins. You have had to grieve because of sorrow, or you are in the midst of infertility. You are experiencing loneliness. Some of these struggles are my struggles, and some of them are the struggles of the very people around you. And one of the things that you can do to get to know some of those struggles is come back tonight as we gather to lament. 
But perhaps you've read this verse like so many people read this verse in Ecclesiastes, assuming that the preacher's simply a fatalist. Some things aren't straight, and some things are crooked, and there's nothing I can do about it anyways, so who cares? And that's my approach to life. But as we remember death's sermon, there's another way to live in light of these verses. Verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. The preacher is saying that whether things are crooked or straight, We need to see that the whole of our life, from the day of our birth to the day of our death, is under the auspice of the sovereign goodness of God. And brothers and sisters who are suffering and have suffered, you are learning or have learned what some of us need to learn, that it is actually suffering that teaches us that we are finite. It is our suffering that teaches us to be dependent upon God. It is our suffering that teaches us to pray. And when we pray, we recognize that we need somebody outside of us to do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves, that some things are indeed crooked and we have no power to make it right. So we need the sovereign goodness of God to fix it and to make it right. And the day is coming when he will make what is crooked straight. It teaches us patience, and it teaches us endurance, and it teaches us to not live for this life as we remember death's sermon, which is why the preacher says in verse 15, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. So be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? At which point I want to say this is not an endorsement of a moderate amount of wickedness. The preacher is just saying, do not be the type of person who thinks you can fix everything in this life. It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. You do not have the power to edit God's agenda, and I know that some of you wish that you were dealt a different deck of cards, but we are far from the driving seat, and that should not drive us to despair. Remembering death's sermon in light of God's sovereignty gives us hope as we face trials. Sixth, self-righteousness. Drop down to verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Now, at this point, careful Bible readers will note that Ecclesiastes 7.20 is the single verse in Ecclesiastes that could be a semblance of what is quoted in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, Paul starts a series of quotations derived from the Old Testament, which lead up to this assertion, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, to which Paul immediately follows with the glorious truth of the gospel, that all have sinned, but they are now justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Friends, the redemption in Jesus Christ is God's means for making straight what is crooked as we remember death's sermon while we try to live wisely while we live like we are dying. As we remember death, all of us must remember why we will die. Every single 
person in here will die because the wages of sin is death. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Like the Olympians that we prayed for, all of you came into this church with something in common this morning. Souls that will never die, and you are sinners by birth and sinners by choice. But the great free gift of the gospel is that you do not have to die. You can live, and the free gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So how do you receive that gift? Friends, the Bible tells us if you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, that you will be forgiven of your sins and given eternal life. And as our brother Dan exhorted us earlier in this service, we never move on from reminding ourselves of the gospel. Believer in this room, remembering death reminds you that you will die and that you must continue to repent and be driven ever deeper into that repentance as you grow in the grace of wisdom. But for those of you who are here today and you do not call yourself a believer and might not consider yourself a Christian, not only are we so glad that you are here, we are here to tell you that you will die and you will die because you are a sinner, whether you believe it or not. But there is hope in Christ. And if you repent of your sins and trust in Christ, you too can know the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting by faith in Jesus Christ. We call you now as we call you each week to trust in Christ's sacrifice. Believer, trust in it afresh. Unbeliever, trust in it for the first time. Believer, remember death's sermon and turn away from foolishness. Unbeliever, hear death's sermon. You will die and no matter what you do this side of eternity, what will be written of you is not all of the things that you have achieved but ultimately whether or not you are one of God's followers and your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. As we come to the end of our text, we're reminded in the Lord's Supper of the free gift of God that he has secured for us through the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. On the night before he suffered, Jesus instituted this sacrament of his body and blood as a sign and a pledge of his love for us for a continual remembrance as we gather together to remind ourselves of his sacrificial death and that we as believers in Christ share in his risen life. Brothers and sisters, as it is in these holy mysteries that we are made one with Christ and Christ is made one with us and we are made one with another as we are brought into the body of Christ. Friends, having this in mind and thinking of his great love for us and obedience to his righteous command, the church always renders to God our Heavenly Father never-ending thanks from the creation of the world for his continuing providence over our life, for his kindness to all mankind, and for the redemption that is ours in Jesus Christ. It is personally ours as we personally trust in Christ and that he has made us his children. Friends, if you have trusted in Christ, you are one of God's children. You're not a part of a theoretical people of God You are a part of the people of God. But if we are to share rightly in this celebration, and if we are to be nourished by this food, then we must remember the dignity of this table, which is why we regularly call on ourselves to remember and to prepare ourselves to approach carefully as we eat the bread and drink from the cup. Hear Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Friends, is the benefit as great as we approach this table with repentant hearts? So the danger is great if we approach this table improperly without recognizing the body and blood of our Lord. Before we approach the table, I just want everyone to stay where they are as we pause for a moment of silent reflection and pray and prepare our hearts to receive this table. Friends, examine your lives and your conduct in light of God's commandments, and then begin to think, is there anything that I need to repent of right now, whether it's in thought or word or deed? The Bible tells you to acknowledge your sins before God with intent on amending your life, and as Stephen reminded us earlier while he was presiding, if you do that, God assures us, unbelievers especially hear this, if you come to God asking for forgiveness, you will always be met with the mercy of a loving and a forgiving God. The scripture tells us, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But not only do we need to deal with our sins personally before the Lord, the scripture tells us that we need to deal with the way that we live with one another. Hear Jesus' words in Matthew chapter six. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Brothers and sisters, as we approach the table this morning, if there is anger that you have against somebody else or bitterness against somebody else, or you have been harboring lies and deceit and slandering against somebody else, then the most godly thing that you can do is not approach this table and either go make it right before we come or wait until you have made it right. Hearing Paul's warning, be right with God and be right with one another. If you have judged other people in this congregation unfairly, if you have treated them as their sins deserved, instead of being like God, not treating them as their sins deserve, being patient and forbearing and kind and honest, regardless of how they have acted toward you, then do not come to the Lord's table today, but go and make it right. But if you have been reconciled with God, and if you are a believer struggling on the journey, trying to make it right with other people as you live this life, then once again, we want to give you assurance from the scripture. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you are saved and you are forgiven. And if you have not, unbeliever, we are glad that you are here. 
but do not come to the table today. Stay right where you are and ask God to forgive you your sins, and he will, and find one of us after the service today at one of the doors or in the tunnel. We would love to open the Bible with you and tell you the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Repentance removes doubt. Part of the reason that we all doubt so frequently is that there's sin in our lives, and we begin to wonder, if I'm really a Christian, will that still be there? And why has it lasted for so long? I should, I should be more mature now. Repentance removes doubt and it gives us the assurance of pardon and it strengthens our faith to come to the table boldly knowing that we have been sealed with the promised spirit and can now put sin to death and approach this table in worship. If you have repented of your sins and been baptized, if you have believed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and are a member of a church that preaches the same gospel that this church preaches, we invite you to come to this table of this most heavenly food and be nourished as we not only proclaim the gospel but remind ourselves by seeing the gospel and in so many ways tasting the goodness of the gospel as we remember our Lord Jesus' broken body and shed blood for us. There are going to be two lines in a minute. There are going to be people down here passing out the elements. We're going to ask you to come down and break off a piece of the bread and take a cup, go back to your seat, and we will take it all together in just a moment. But for those who are here and might not feel comfortable breaking off from the common loaf or taking one of the cups in the midst there, we have a basket here that has the elements prepackaged. We'd love for you to come down, grab one, take that back to your seat, and you can take the Lord's Supper with us there together. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask everyone to stand as I pray. Musicians and those coming to serve will come forward at this time. Father, as we gather together, we remind ourselves of the gospel because we are so prone to forget the good news of the gospel and our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to remember and proclaim right now. And Father, we pray as we approach the table right now that we would be quick to give thanks for what Jesus Christ has done for us as we remember that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. That upon him was the chastisement that has brought us peace. And by his wounds, we have been healed. And because of that, we can approach this table boldly today as we sang earlier, fearing no condemnation in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we ask all of this in the name of our God, who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Would you come?